Good morning. I have a very early memory of um, sitting at my grandmother's table, listening to my grandmother, aunts, uncles, parents and extended family members having long and detailed, boring conversations about who this person was, who they were married to, where they met, where their family came from. And I absolutely had no interest in it at all. Who cares who was married, where they came from, and who they, which planet they came from, which country they came from. But it's funny as you get older that some of those things start to matter more. I've been really surprised how much of an interest I have started developing over the last 10 years or so into family trees. Like, where does my family come from? In fact, one of the things that Kath and I have been discovering along our journey, um, there are lots of kids who have grown up disconnected from their biological families, and one of the really important things um, about our personal identity, doesn't matter who we are, our personal identity, one of the things that informs our present understanding of who I am right now is having a grasp of where I came from. That my extended biological family, what are the stories that shaped them that led up to me being who I am and where I am today? So I've developed a, a bit of a fascination with family trees. Now, we've talked a bit about this morning already, Luke has, about um, times when we feel inadequate. There's nothing like demonstrating your inadequacy, like trying to read publicly a genealogy. So let's do that this morning. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew, so the very first book in the New Testament, and chapter 1, and we're going to read Matthew's um, genealogy of Jesus. Now, we're starting a new series um, this week, and it's called The Threads of Scandalous Grace, and um, I hope that over the next... um, five weeks or so, that's going to become apparent as to why that is so significant. And this is where this series um, sprang from. It sprang from Matthew's genealogy, Matthew's story of Jesus' family tree. Um, And so we're going to read it together. I'm going to read it to you or attempt to. Um, I have a very good friend that I grew up with as a Christian and Um, he always said that if you're ever reading the Bible out loud and you come across a word that you don't think you can pronounce, just say wheelbarrow. Matthew's genealogy looks like a construction site, all right? But we're going to give it a shot. Um, Read along me. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. I think I've put it on the screen um, to try and follow along if you can. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to pray. Lord, we're about to read your word. It's going to be a little bit difficult to pronounce some of these things. But more important than pronunciation, Lord, will your spirit reveal to our hearts what you want to say to us today. We want to look more like Jesus. We want to understand Jesus more. We want to love Jesus more. And so help us this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you found it? All right, this is an account Matthew says, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham 
fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you are an underlining person, underline the word Tamar. We're going to come back to that one day. All right. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Underline Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Underline Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Underline that. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad. Abiad fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph to the husband, the husband of Mary, underline Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's Jesus' family tree, or at least one part of it. There are women, I asked you to underline them. How many did you underline, at least mentally, if not physically in your Bible? How many were there? Five. These women are unlikely people to be included in Jesus' lineage, right? Some of them were very young. Some were widows. Some of them are tied to people who have committed despicably sinful acts. But all of their stories are stories about grace. In fact, most of them scandalously so. Scandalous grace. And this series is going to pause in this genealogy on those five women. The, the women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy and explore their life and their story, their contribution to Jesus. And I think it's going to highlight 
how God's scandalous grace extends to everybody. So we're not going to go all the way back to the beginning of the genealogy. We're going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning. So today, we're going to look at Mary. Mary, who I'm going to call an unlikely girl. An unlikely girl. At least in the sense that she would be included in this genealogy. Just the fact that there are five women mentioned at all in Matthew's genealogy is scandalous. Genealogists or people who study and record history, certainly in the Hebrew tradition in the first century, would only normally record father to father to father to father all the way through. But did you notice that as Matthew records the story of the lineage of Jesus, that every now and again there was a little pause and he made a very deliberate attempt to say, this was through Tamar. Or this was through Ruth. Or this was through Uriah's wife. We'll come back to that one. Eventually, this is through Mary. Have a look in Matthew chapter 1. You're already there. From verse 18. Let's read a little bit of Mary's story. Matthew chapter 1, reading from verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly but after he had considered these things an angel of the lord appeared to him in a dream saying joseph son of david don't be afraid to take mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the holy spirit she will give birth to a son and you are to name him jesus because he will save his people from their sins now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. No. This is an unlikely girl. An unlikely story even. Right? A virgin girl was chosen to be the mother of the saviour of the world. It doesn't get any more unlikely than that. Both at an intellectual level at a physiological level, at a practical level, it doesn't get any more unlikely than that. Whether Mary was raised in a nearby city or maybe she was raised in the 
the backward little village of Nazareth, life for a young girl in the early first century Middle East was hard and dangerous. Women were second-class citizens and were considered the property of their fathers and then their husbands. From the time that they were toddlers, young girls were taught the basic skills of being a wife. That was... That was the extent of any ambition that a young girl could have in the Middle East in the first century. That she might one day be a wife. And so she was taught all the skills necessary for being a wife and running a household. Cooking, weaving, sewing, cleaning... Boys were allowed a small amount of time to play. But little girls were expected to work as soon as they were able to. Life was dangerous in the first century Middle East for young girls. Right? Palestine, the, the nation of Palestine that they were a part of in that time was afire with rebellions against Rome constantly. There were Roman reprisals, there were sort of revenge actions by the Roman Empire against these upstart Palestinians, and so they would fire back. There was always skirmishes and war happening around them. And the Roman reprisals, when they came, were brutal. Anyone that remembers anything about your history from school knows that Rome did not tolerate uprising. Mary would have most likely grown up seeing beatings regularly. Men killed in fights with soldiers regularly. Crucifixions were commonplace all over Israel, wherever the Romans were. This was all what a little girl was exposed to growing up in the first century of the Middle East. Although the Jewish people were by um, history a very clean people, hygiene was still primitive. Disease in the first century was rampant. A man was considered old at 45. This year I'm going to turn 47. There are some days I feel very old. But a 47-year-old man in the first century was considered blessed for the years that he had lived. Women rarely lived as long as men. The first century that Mary grew up in, the world that Mary grew up in, was violent and hard. At about the age of 12, a girl was subjected to regular examinations by midwives and as soon as she showed signs of puberty, she was declared eligible for marriage at 12. Marriage was not a romantic affair. It was a contract. When a girl, often as young as seven or eight, 
was betrothed to a man, she was legally considered his wife, even though they may not be married in the usual sense until she was declared eligible by the midwives. The betrothal was different to our engagements that we have in our world. A betrothal could only be ended by a formal divorce process, and this was rare. Marriage relieved the father of the responsibility and expense of raising a daughter, and the husband received someone to care for his needs and bear him sons. Love had nothing or very little to do with it. And if love should develop between a man and a wife, it was considered an extra benefit and a special blessing. All right. So when a betrothed girl was of age, she would be taken from her father's home in a joyous procession, I'm sure for everybody else, and brought to the home of her husband. More often than not, the only one who was not joyful may have been the bride who was usually in her very early teens and probably terrified. In most cases, it was probably the very first time in her life that she had spent a night outside of her own home. And she was now suddenly and permanently removed from that home. Now, Nazareth was a small town. More than likely, Mary probably knew Joseph In larger cities, the bride might never have even seen her husband until she was taken to his house in the marriage procession. No sexual relationships took place until the bride went to live with the husband and to engage in a sexual relationship before that time was considered adultery and was harshly punished. The man would have religious sanctions placed on him. He would be excluded from the assembly. Women, more often than not, were stoned to death for it. There was no religious ceremony to seal the marriage, although the public recognition and gathering of the union carried with it very strong religious ties to the Old Testament culture. We don't know very much about Joseph at all from the Bible's record. The Bible presents him as a good and just man. There's no reason to doubt that. Um, The Bible doesn't tell us how old he was. There's a few different traditions that are going around uh, from church history. One saying that he was a very young man, probably very late teens or early 20s. And the other tradition was that he was an older man who had already lost a wife. There's insufficient information in the Bible to prove one is more likely than the other. And it was very common for older widowers to marry much younger girls. Not only were virgins considered vastly more desirable than widows in that time, but since a woman's life expectancy was considerably shorter than men's, a younger girl was strong and less likely to die and leave the man alone again. And so they would desire to marry a younger woman. Mary and Joseph, the Bible tells us, were betrothed, but not yet married. 
And then the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and announced that she had been chosen to bear the Son of God. And this son that she would bear would be a royal successor to King David. Mary agrees. Mary says, may what you say be true. And she demonstrates, I think, incredible faith and amazing courage for a young girl of her era. We remember today, as we read these passages and look back on it, we remember that moment when the, when the angel comes to announce what would happen as a moment of great honour and a moment of great glory. But if we consider for a moment the Jewish society of the time, that announcement was quite the opposite, really. Not of, not of honour and of glory, Mary was accepting a dangerous and potentially fatal course of action. Being found pregnant before her marriage would have immediately opened up her to the charge of adultery and therefore potentially being stoned to death. So when the the angel came and said, Mary, you are most honoured, you're going to give birth, I'm wondering, Mary's sitting there thinking, am I going to die now? Right? Because she was betrothed to Joseph, her life lay in his hands. She had no control over what was going to happen next. Everything that was about to happen next all hinged on what Joseph would do and who he would tell. As her betrothed, Joseph had three choices. Marry her immediately and then send her away to live elsewhere, almost a sentence of death to be a single pregnant woman in the first century. Or, second option, hand her over to the townspeople to have her stoned. Or three, divorce her secretly to try and save her honour. Had she not had been betrothed already, her father would have had the decision either to let her continue to live in his disgraced household now or to keep the family honour and put her to death. Regardless of the outcome, if she lived, she would bear the stigma of shame and scandal for the rest of her life. Right? Even in modern Australia society, up until just a few years ago, a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock, that was a scandal in a small town up until just a few years ago, probably. People would talk about it. Oh, she wasn't married and she got pregnant. All right? especially in small towns, Mary's transgression would never have been completely forgotten. Mary, as young as she probably was, certainly knew what she was undertaking when she said in Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
Mary was taking on something massive here. As soon as she conceived, Mary left Nazareth and went into the hill country, the Bible tells us, to visit her elderly relative Elizabeth, who was the wife of Zechariah. Elizabeth was miraculously five months pregnant with the child who would become John the Baptist. Joseph and possibly even her own parents almost certainly did not know of Mary's pregnancy when she left for the visit. It says as soon as she became, she is conceived, she left. Maybe no one knew. On the other hand, her parents may have sent her there to try and hide the shame of what was occurring, to try and bury the scandal a little while longer, give them time to think about what to do next, send her away to the hill country, go see your cousin. But Elizabeth recognised Mary's pregnancy immediately. In Luke 1, 42, it says, she looked at her and called her blessed. Mary stayed for three months with Elizabeth. And when she returned to Nazareth, it was probably impossible to hide her pregnancy any longer. If they had not known about it before, her parents would have been absolutely livid when she returned back. Joseph would have been doubtlessly shocked and deeply hurt. And as her betrothed, it was his responsibility to decide what to do with her. And the Bible tells us that as he was a just and kind man, he decided to send her away instead of delivering her up to be stoned. In a dream, the angel of the Lord came to him and told him that the child was God's doing. Right? And that he should take her in marriage. And he, like Mary, was obviously a person of great faith and great courage, and he married her. This is not only, this not only would have labelled him as being most likely the adulterous father of this child, but also put the stigma of being a sinner not only on Mary but now on Joseph. In that community, they would have been known as that couple. The rest of his life would have been marked by that sin, supposedly, and that shame that was very real. Right? Mary's story is incredible. Incredible story. She was betrothed to someone when the angel of the Lord told her that she would become the mother of the Messiah. And as such, she faced daily shame and scorn for what others assumed about her. You know the way the stories in townships go, don't they? She was probably scared and uncertain of her future. And yet, she expressed an ultimate faith in God who always made and always delivered on his promises. When the angel appears to Mary, her response is an indication of her faith. Luke 1, 38. 
in the NLT says this, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. She was completely throwing her lot in with what God had said. God, I know the way this should work out, but I'm just going to trust you. May everything you have said about me come true. Mary recognizes her unlikeliness, right? And she sings her praise to God later on in Luke chapter 1, verse 48. Why don't you turn to it? We were in Matthew. Go over and find the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1. This is how Luke records this same story. Luke chapter 1. I want you to just have a look at one verse here, Luke 1, 48. This is part of a song that Mary sang when she went to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth said to her, oh, Mary, you're blessed. You're carrying the Messiah. And Mary erupts in a song. And one part of this song says, Luke 1, verse 48. For God has taken notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. God has noticed this lowly servant girl. God's noticed me. Mary was an ordinary girl, a very ordinary girl, who likely planned to live a very ordinary life. But what remains beautiful about this story is that God never sees anyone as ordinary. Never. The world considered Mary to be an unlikely girl on the threshold of marriage. But God rewarded her faith and planned from the very beginning for her life to be anything but ordinary. Let's read the whole song that we just quoted from a moment ago. Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 46. This is Mary's song of praise for the situation that she has found herself in. Knowing full well everything that we just highlighted a few moments ago about the prospect of her life, the way that this culture and her town and her family would probably respond to her, even the fact that she might fight, face death. This is Mary's song of response. Verse 46 of Luke 1, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, because He has looked with favour on the humble condition of His servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and His name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel 
remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. There are just three things that I want to take from Mary's story for us to focus on this week. As we begin this journey of following Matthew's genealogy and saying, there are these threads of grace, scandalous grace that weave into the tapestry of the story of Jesus. How Jesus came, how is it that God brought about this amazing miracle, the Son of God, born as the Son of Man, to take away the sins of the world. And there are these scandalous threads of grace that weave into that story. Here are three things to take away from Mary's. The first is this, how God defines special is very different to how the world defines special. All right? How God defines special is very different to how the world defines special. We have such complex language habits as people. We have very complex language habits. On the one hand, we grow up in the world we live in today with such an immense cultural pressure to be special. All right? Our social media habits, to a large degree, are driven by people who are looking to be special, to stand out as something special, to get more followers as someone special. We want to be special. We're told we're special. But on the other hand, we only want that if we can label it the way we want to. We don't, we don't like that label when it's attached to someone who has special needs. Well, we want to be special unless, of course, it means that we might have special needs. The word special just gets so torn and twisted and, and stretched to make it however we want it to be, whatever suits us. Our definition of special, even in the most desirable sense, involves being spectacular. We want to be spectacular in this world. We want to be recognisable amongst our social group. We want to have exceptional talent or exceptional beauty, or better yet, both together. We want to be financially independent before our peers. We have dreams of retiring financially secure by the time that we're 50 or something. Basically, our quest to be special is a reaction to our fear of being a nobody. We don't want to be just another faceless person in the crowd that fills this world. So by our standards, Mary was anything but special. She was a nobody. Destined to age, marry, have children and die, all without leaving much of a mark on this planet, let alone anything on history. Mary was not special, using our categories. But God has a vastly different definition of special, for which we should be very grateful. 
right? God saw a peasant girl in a town that barely made the map and said, this world doesn't get to define what special is, I do. Right? And this is astoundingly good news for us because God doesn't change. He is still in the business of taking what appears to be unremarkable and ordinary and doing remarkable and extraordinary things with them. Mary was right. Surely from now on, all generations have called her blessed. A very unlikely girl from a nowhere town. And all generations from that day to this have risen up and said, blessed is Mary. Blessed is Mary. That's the first thing we need to take away from Mary's story. God defines what special is. And that's good news. The second thing is this. We should resolve to live for the right type of reputation. We should resolve to live for the right type of reputation. Right? Mary lived her life with a very real sense that this wasn't really about her. It wasn't really about her, but about what God was doing. Mary demonstrates what a God-focused life looks like. Despite the, the platform that you might have, or how many people follow you, or even know you, the world desperately needs more Marys in it, right? Raymond Terrace desperately needs more Marys. People who are willing to live their life for God's agenda, willing to be used by God, regardless what that means for them, and willing to say what Mary said. Remember? See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as he said. That's the reputation that Mary was pursuing. Not a reputation for her own agenda, for elevating herself up out of Nazareth. I'm going to be that girl that shows all the other girls in Nazareth what it's going to be like. Mary, Mary was just setting about her life, but she said, you know what? If this is what God has for me, then that's what I'm pursuing. Third thing is this, God is doing big things in this world. And most of us here today will agree with that. Yes, God is doing big things in this world. I can see him. I can see him doing it in really special people. I can see him in doing it in those Christians that are really, you know, they've really got their act together. God's using those people, and it's so exciting to see. But I want to tell you this morning, God is doing big things in this world, and He wants to use you. And more than likely, you're sitting in your seat saying, well, how could that happen? I'm a, I'm a nobody. Chris, you don't know my story. Chris, you don't understand the things that I've done. Chris, my shame, you don't understand the things that have happened to me. I could never, I'm broken. I'm not special. I'm going to say it again. God is doing big things in this world and he actually wants to use you. Right? It might be cliche, but it doesn't make it untrue. 
And it's this, it's the little things that count. It's the little things that count. Up until Gabriel visited Mary, she was unknown. Remember? She probably had no prospect of greatness. But known or unknown, Mary did the little things. Mary walked through life with humility. We can see that as we look at her song of praise. She had a solid grasp of God's hand through her national heritage. She understood what God had been doing in the story of Israel. We can safely assume that she had a reverence for God's authority over the nations by reading her song of praise. And she was willing to trust what God said even when she could not understand it. When Gabriel came to visit Mary and said to her, Mary, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. And she looked at Gabriel and just went, how can this be? Completely confused by about what God was doing and how he could possibly do it. But then she said, but may it be as you have said. I don't understand what you're doing, God. I don't even understand how you can use me. But do it, but do it. I'm willing to just follow. This morning, you might think you're too small for God to use. You're not. You're not. You might think that you are too unskilled for God to use. I've got nothing to offer God. Nothing. He's not asking for your skills. He wants you. You might think that God has better options at his disposal than you. There are dozens of stories we could turn to where God used people in the Bible. And the first reaction was, why don't you use that person? They're much better than I am. Moses stood there and God said, I want to use you. And he went, I've got a speech impediment, I can't be used. He was making up excuses. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that he was highly skilled in speech and oratory. But he went, oh, I, um, I'm going to speak. I, I, I don't know what to say next. Um, use someone else, God. And God said, Moses, I want to use you. God looks at you, all of you, each one of you sitting here this morning, watching online, He sees all of you. Not just the public you, not just the part of you that you show us when you're in conversation or at church. God sees all of you. He sees the secret you and the broken you. He sees the the little you and he loves you, all of it. Not one part is hidden from him and he loves you. God looks at you and doesn't just love you for your potential. He doesn't just say, I love this person because of what they will be one day. He loves you now. He loves you for your actual self. Why? Because when he sees you, he sees Christ in you. The very Jesus that Mary bore into the world. For those 
calling out to this same Jesus saying, Jesus, I need you. I am weak and broken without you, lost without you, and the Father sees you right now. And he sees you and he loves you because he sees Jesus in you. We're going to follow the rest of the stories of these scandalous threads of grace. Mary's was the first. Mary, the unlikely girl. Maybe you feel you have an unlikely story. It would be unlikely that God could use me. God can. He used a little girl in a broken world, frightened, violence surrounding her, uncertain about whether she would live or die. And with her, through her, transformed the world. As she was threaded in, woven in, to the story of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love for us. I want to thank you for Mary. Lord, we call her blessed. Thank you that this unlikely girl may be frightened and confused even. I want to thank you that Mary was willing to simply place her life into your hands and trust what you were doing. She is blessed, as are all who do the same. And so, Lord, help us as we learn from her life even. As we look and and realize what you have done in her, you can do in us as well. That you define what is special. You are able to use even the smallest, the weakest amongst us. In fact, you delight in doing that. So, Lord, help us to pursue that type of reputation, a reputation of those who will simply place their hands and their future into your hands to see what you can do. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.